welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. Today we will be discussing human rights in China. Human rights abuses are widespread in contemporary China. Abuses range from crackdowns on political activism to abolishment of religious freedoms. The purpose of this podcast is to highlight and explain the most pressing human rights issues in contemporary China with a focus on the internment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Olivia Enos, a senior policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. She focuses on human rights and national security challenges in Asia. Her research spans a wide variety of subjects, including democracy and governance challenges, human trafficking and human smuggling, religious freedom, refugee issues, and other social challenges in the region. Enos has a bi-monthly column in Forbes, where she writes on the intersection between human rights challenges and national security concerns. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, so can you explain to our listeners some of the human rights violations that are occurring in China, specifically with regards to the Uyghur re-education camps and the surveillance going on in that region. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, the situation in China is pretty grave. What we are seeing is really reminiscent of the Cultural Revolution in China, where you really saw a broader repression of people of all faiths. And I think a lot of this is really stemming from I mean, not only Xi Jinping's vision of what the ideal China looks like, but um, in particular finds its roots in a lot of repression of religious minorities within China. So in February of 2018, there was um, a new an institution of new regulations on religious affairs that led to essentially China redefining religion as religion with Chinese characteristics. And that means that any sort of religious practice, whether you are a Christian or a Uyghur Muslim or a Buddhist or a Falun Gong, all of them have to have religious traditions that comport with what the Chinese Communist Party says is ideal. And that means state has to come before God. And so you've seen unbelievable forms of repression against people of all faiths, whether that's pastors being thrown into prison or Falun Gong practitioners being um, arbitrarily detained and in some cases allegedly having their organs harvested, right. mm -hmm. um, or of course the Uyghur Muslims. Um, and we just saw New York Times release the Xinjiang yeah. papers last week. This is hugely revelatory, um, not in the sense that we didn't know it was already happening, but confirmation internally that this was something architected from the very top. Xi Jinping saying, we want to see a systematic repression of Uyghur Muslims. Um, and happy to go into that in greater detail, but today there's roughly 1.8 million Uyghurs in political re-education facilities today where they're subject to propaganda, to sort of um, forced confessions, um, and, and a complete transformation, forced Mandarin lessons, and in some cases torture. Some have even died while being held in detention. This is truly horrific, and it, it merits strong action on the U.S.'s part. So so what's the historical context of this? Because I know that, for example, the, the, chi the China invaded Tibet in 1959, but what's the historical um, the historical context of the Uyghur crisis? The you know with the, as well with the, as a Tibetan as well. You mentioned the Cultural Revolution and like the issues with religion during that time period in China's history. So like more specifically, just like what has allowed them to facilitate this. <laughs> yeah, so Xinjiang is the western region of China and there have at different times been movements towards separatism, which China would see as threatening to its fundamental foreign policy and also domestic priorities. China's primary priority is to maintain internal stability, to maintain its own sovereignty, and it's always seen any form of separatism as threatening to that. I think that the 
the urge for separatism and also um, the false narrative that terrorism is something that's prevalent in the Uyghur population is is largely false. Um, there have been minor instances that have happened. It happened like knife attacks and a couple of um, limited instances of bombings that, while concerning, don't demonstrate that the Uyghur population as a whole is radical or extremist. But as I mentioned in my previous answer, when they instituted the regulation on religious affairs, they didn't just make religion conform to the Chinese Communist Party. Ends, but they also stated that all religious practice was extremism. And obviously we know that to be false. Um, so the history of, of this really does go back to the perceptions of separatism, the perceptions of terrorism coming from the Uyghurs. Um, but it's also important to remember, and I, I think this is where I see a lot of the cultural revolution coming into play, is that um, Uyghurs themselves speak a different language. That's why they're being subject to Mandarin. And one of the early ways that you can see, you know, sort of the fingerprints of genocide coming about is when a government requires a, a group of people to abandon their traditions and to abandon their language in particular. And so we're seeing a lot of that, but we're also seeing instances where these political re-education facilities, like during the Cultural Revolution, are actually using like the factories of legitimate economic operations as fronts for what are broader, you know, political re-education camps, essentially. And so you're seeing mass collectivization at an extraordinarily rapid rate. And I would say this is what distinguishes what's happening to the Uyghurs from what happened previously during the Cultural Revolution, which is that the, the use and application of technology for the purposes right. of authoritarian ends has made the ability to collectivize a population much more rapid, much more quick. Mm. And so I think we're seeing a lot of the really draconian authoritarian practices um, being used against the Uyghurs, but there's no reason why they can't be used in other contexts. And as you mentioned earlier, um, in Tibet, this was where all of those policies were rolled out. Um, it's called grid-style social management, and that's right. where they deployed the yeah. surveillance technology. And so, yeah, do you mind expanding a little bit upon, like, what, I mean, I've, I've read a couple um, articles recently about um, facial recognition technology and blood samples and things like that. Like, maybe just expand for our listeners a little bit of what those technologies are that the CCP is using to do kind of these repressive tactics yeah, on that's Uyghurs. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think we've seen this type of persecution against the Uyghurs going back a really long time um, because you had the collection of DNA samples happening several years back. Um, you had, um, of course, this facial recognition recognition technology now that's being deployed. And um, Human Rights Watch has done some really fantastic reporting on this. Um, but they looked at one particular um, technology that was so expansive that it would monitor, for example, and deem suspicious the exiting of a person out their back door rather than their front door. And this was grounds for detaining a person and wow. calling them in for questioning. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, oh, yeah. you're letting your dog out the wow. back door and then you happen to go out that way instead of going out the front. Going to garden um, your tomatoes, you know. Right, exactly. And this is viewed with suspicion. So ordinary activities that, you know, should be fully within a person's right to engage in are, are deemed suspicious. And this is extraordinarily concerning. But um, what we saw in Tibet was the grid-style social management, and that happened through deployment of the surveillance technology in the case of Xinjiang to monitor whether people are going to mosque, in the case of Tibet, whether or not they're going to temple. Um, but also, um, it, this is being done at the same time as um, 
they're establishing what are called convenience police stations should conjure up sort of the notional idea of like, oh, it's as common as a CVS or a Walgreens. Um, but this it's is the like police. every block right? <laughs> or every couple blocks. Yeah. And they did this in Tibet. And it's interesting because what was deployed in Tibet was deployed by the same person who is now party secretary in Xinjiang. His name is Cheng Guangguo. And I think that's why you've seen a real push in the international community for accountability for for, um, Cheng Guangguo. But I think now, with the release of the Xinjiang papers, it's clear that Xi Jinping architected and orchestrated this sort of in conjunction with Cheng Guangguo. And so the question will be whether or not there will be a, a pressure to hold accountability even at the highest levels of the government for something as massive and severe right. in scale. So so how is the Chinese government responding to these allegations? Like like of course we, we know that they're what they're doing in Xinjiang, we know what they're doing in Tibet, but how are they speaking about this in the international stage? Like what's their own like framing it. What's yeah. their, how are they framing it? <laughs> so it, the messaging has evolved over time. Um, originally they were out they now don't denying exist. it. Yeah, they don't <laughs> exist. They're they're not there. Um, and then they morphed into this. Oh, it's it's an educational facility. They're going into a program. And something that came out of the Xinjiang papers was that um, when students who were Uyghur were studying abroad, but let's say they came home for Christmas break. They wanted to know, where, where are my family members? Um, what's going on? The officials were instructed when they talked um, to these family members to tell them, your family member didn't commit a crime, but your family member has become infected with dangerous forms of thinking, and so they require re-education. And so they'd tell them that their parents were just studying. And they said, well, if my parent is studying, why can't I get in contact them. with them? Yeah. <laughs> why can't I see them? Why can't I even text with them or use, you know, any sort of communication form with them? And they just can't. Um, and so the messaging definitely is this is an education facility. I think I even saw today on Twitter that the Chinese were announcing, well, all the people have graduated from this program. <laughs> I mean, this is not They've your typical from graduation. education and now they put in labor. Right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. And that's the other scary thing is that um, there really is forced labor going yeah, on. Absolutely. And there yeah. were reports even last year that some of the goods produced with forced labor in Xinjiang. Is ending up in American companies. Ending up. Yes. And they were not even in American companies. Sportswear companies that were going to, like, colleges around the right. U.S. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think China's response has been super interesting. Like, I was listening to a New York Times podcast this morning about how one man called specific attention to his specific family member in a re-education camp. And then as soon as that story got um, international attention, the Chinese government released that mother, but then at the same time, like, was still surveilling her and, like, was saying, was, like, monitoring her calls and connections with the son. But as soon as the international community, like, or media like brought attention to one specific instance, the Chinese government was like, oh, well, we can do something about that one specific instance to try to manipulate the narrative mm. that maybe it's not as bad as everyone's saying yeah. it is. Yeah, there's like this mirage of grace and mercy when yeah. really there's not. <laughs> yeah, so kind of yeah. talking about what has been the U.S. government's reaction to this um, crisis and human crises more generally in China. I know the, uh, Congress just passed a resolution recently. Um, so just what has the U.S. been doing 
um, and saying about this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think even historically, Congress has been more active and responsive on human rights issues. I don't think the executive branch is always the most active, but um, in lieu of that, I think Congress has been particularly active the last several sessions, whether that's through the passage of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Um, There's also been a lot of attention on the um, Uyghurs as well. There's Uyghur Act. There's several pieces of legislation that are, are under consideration in Congress. From the executive branch level, um, you have seen travel restrictions placed on individuals, and that was a notable step. Um, but I think it's it's really the first step, and we need to see financial sanctions against someone like Chen Guangguo, but also even some of the lower-level officials. Um, I know in talking with folks at Treasury that when Treasury thinks about a good uh, individual to select for for sanctioning, they think about the influence that that individual has over their community and the vulnerability of their assets in terms of them being dollar denominated or them doing a lot of currency transactions in dollar denominated settings. Um, and so sometimes that can be difficult when um, outside groups like human rights um, advocates don't have access to that type of financial data. But I think that in egregious cases like Chen Guangguo, where he's so clearly a community leader, where he's being groomed for leadership, I think over the long term in the Chinese Communist Party, targeting him would be a huge, huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I think that the U.S. should definitely do. I think it it needs to go a step beyond just those uh, travel restrictions and go toward financial So those individual sanctions. And, well, I guess, I mean, do you think that that is, I don't know, do you think that that really is a convincing tool, you know, to get the CCP to change? Or or do you think that they would just maybe throw this person under the bus? Or, you know, how how does China react to U.S. responses, at least so far? Yeah, it would be really interesting to see. I think, um, so the sanctions authority I'm thinking about in particular is called Global Magnitsky, and it it enables the U.S. government to target people on human rights and corruption grounds. And even though I don't have an example in the China case, um, I believe in the context of Latin America, and please pardon me, I've forgotten which country exactly, (laughs) but um, when the U.S. issued its first round of Global Magnitsky designations, it targeted a high-level government official in a Latin American country. And in that country, um, after he was designated, he was immediately removed from office. It was huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was designated specifically on corruption grounds. Um, And so it depends on the government, I think, and how they will respond to that. I think in this case, it would send a ripple effect through the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the really revelatory aspects of the Xinjiang papers that came out was that there were individuals who dissented, who dissented, yeah. and they were allegedly purged. Um, and that merits definitely further investigation to see who who those people were, what happened to them. Does purging mean killing? Does purging mean just removal from office? But I wonder whether or not for the people who already have questions in their mind, whether sanctioning somebody as high level as Chen Guangguo might cause them to think differently and might cause them to, you know, press for communal change or change within the CCP. It's no doubt difficult, but I don't think that that means that we shouldn't try. Um, And I think, unfortunately, there's been a reluctance. There has to be an awareness of other um, political factors. Obviously, we're in trade negotiations with China right now. We have other challenges that are going on in China um, and other issues that we're dealing with. But I don't think those should ever be an excuse for us to not address the human rights issues. And one of the primary reasons why I think that's the case is because um, in China, 
human rights issues don't get put in a separate bucket. They're right. not like, there's mm. the human rights issues. Human rights issues are inextricably linked to China's core foreign policy priorities. They think of Xinjiang, they think of Tibet, they even think of um, different religious traditions as actually threatening to those interests, mm. and so they architect their foreign policy around them. The U.S. should be doing the same. Human rights issues don't need to be in another bucket. We need to think about what are the strategic steps that we can take or particular individuals. Maybe we can't target Chen Guangguo right now for financial sanctions, or maybe we can't target him under his abuses in Xinjiang, but maybe we could target him for what he did in Tibet because we have more evidence for that. Mm -hmm. I think there's like creative ways to think about this, and I think U.S. policymakers have the challenge of saying, okay, we have economic concerns, we have national security concerns, concerns, we have human rights ones. But we have one single country that's doing all of these abuses and really? perpetrating, you know, economic challenges or violating U.S. laws or national security concerns. How do we fit all of those together into a puzzle piece that enables us to address all of them simultaneously? Right. right. So, so we, talk, we talked about what China's doing. We talked about the U.S. responses and possible U.S. responses. So what is What's, what's someone like Europe, the European Union, and Japan responding to these mm. um, situations? That's a great question. So, I mean, I think the EU is generally pretty forward-leaning on human rights issues, um, whether that's in Asia or across the globe. And so you have seen people who are outspoken on that, but I don't think you've really seen strong movements because Europe is so interconnected economically with China. Right. And so you have a really hard time connect, uh, convincing allies like the UK to really be forward-leaning on a lot of the human rights issues. But you have individuals within parliament, um, especially, who are more outspoken. So I think that's a potential area where strong diplomacy on the US side may convince some partners who are traditionally on our side when it comes to human rights and freedom issues to come alongside and support efforts like a financial sanction or even a travel ban. Um, I think one of the more concerning aspects of the Xinjiang response has been how very quiet the Muslim world has been um, in condemning this. We did see really strong statements from Turkey, which are to be definitely commended. Um, and we've seen a couple of statements from Malaysia and Indonesia, I think, but we really have not seen a lot of, of pressure. Um, and it's not exclusively the Muslim world's responsibility to respond. It's not, I don't think it should ever be viewed as like solely and exclusively religious groups challenge to tackle. It's, you know, a threat to freedom anywhere in the world and to any group is a threat to freedom everywhere. And so I think we have to really be vigilant and try to pull together. And again, this is where strong diplomacy and leadership comes from. I mean, people have historically looked to the U.S. to provide that leadership, and I think we need to continue to see that going forward, get a, sort of a coalition of the willing together to respond to what is, I would say, arguably one of, if not the most egregious, one of the most egregious human rights um, violations that are ongoing right now. Right. Yeah, so um, I guess what has been the, have there been any specific things about this specific issue that maybe the U.S. has done differently with regards to human rights? Like, as you said, the U.S. has always kind of framed itself as like a beacon in terms of freedom and democracy and leading the world stage um, in those terms. So how is this specific issue 
maybe like different from those other instances? And mm-hmm. is it at all related to kind of as you mentioned earlier, earlier um, like trade negotiations with China, um, the growing economic power of China, like as a nation? Yeah. Um, so I'm writing an article right now. <laughs> <laughs> so this is top of mind about what U.S. response has been like, especially to atrocity crimes, um, and. About a year ago, I had the opportunity to visit the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and in particular to visit their exhibit, um, Americans in the Holocaust. And the entire exhibit is about what the American response, whether it was U.S. government or average U.S. individual students and how they responded to reports, for example, of like Kristallnacht or hearing about the concentration camps in in Germany. And the response was a mixed bag, which was really sad. Like, you know, there were obviously Holocaust deniers, which is horrifying. Um, But then there were student groups and journalists who were really out at the forefront putting pressure. Um, But ultimately, action was taken because the lone Jewish member of FDR's cabinet, Henry Morgenthau, he was the Treasury Secretary at the time, decided to take up this issue. Mm. And when you walk into the museum's exhibit, um, there were suitcases that were representative of 100 individuals who were seeking asylum um, in the U.S., each suitcase representing 100. Really powerful. Um, and then the next like section that you go to was Henry Morgenthau pressing on FDR to establish the War Refugee Board that ended up resettling more than um, 100,000 uh, European Jewish individuals here in the U.S. And I think that's real leadership um, when in a moment of, of hurting, the U.S. thought about what can we feasibly do to respond to this? And I think that that's what we need here in Xinjiang. We need you know, individuals to be writing articles. We've seen journalists with the Xinjiang paper taking up responsibility. We need more student groups who are really you know, calling out um, actors to take the helm and really you know, seize the bull by its horns. But we also need individuals inside the administration who can take this up and spearhead it and say, this is the issue that we're going to go to the mat over and we are going to address this full throttle. I think now after the Xinjiang papers, it's impossible for anybody to deny exactly what's going on. And so my hope is that there would be greater momentum. And whether that means offering priority to refugee status to individuals from Xinjiang um, in order to resettle them, or whether that means um, sanctioning Chen Guangguo, or that means a whole host of other U.S. government responses that can be taken. I think there's really a need to act, and I don't. I think Congress can definitely lead on this, but the executive branch also needs to, to be certain that they're continuing to, to move forward with something, this. Something I'm interested about that I think – like, I, I'm currently in a class called uh, Human Rights in China, <laughs> or, like the lack thereof. Yeah. And, um, one thing that we haven't talked about is actual responses of um, Chinese citizens in mm. China or, like, really anything to do about how is the domestic population of China responding to international stories or – and is the answer they're not because they don't know about it or is it more complicated than that? I'm, I'm just interested. What – you know, yeah. in those lines. Yeah, I read an article last week, and uh, pardon me, I've forgotten the author's name and the news outlet, but um, <laughs> okay. but it was a really great article, and um, it was this individual who was saying that actually quite a lot of Chinese people know about it, 
um, because either they can gain access through the VPN or through other um, forms of access to media, um, but they're not really responding. And I think some of that is, I mean, the government structure itself is not particularly empowering, I think, to individuals who would want to be outspoken about this. Um, and you've also seen responses of, like, Chinese students at um, events that were featuring Uyghur speakers where there was active boycotting. Um, and so those are concerning, obviously. I mean, everyone is entitled to their own opinion and the freedom of expression to express their dissent. I mean, that's one of the wonderful parts about living in America. But unfortunately, you see really the the dark side and the dark edge of that sometimes. And um I think that there should continue to be a greater effort to uncover these issues, Um, especially we've seen wonderful reporting from RFA, um, Radio Free Asia in particular, where they've done groundbreaking reporting. Um, And that's had implications um, for a lot of their Uyghur family members back home. Um, But I mean, there's got to continue to be bold people who are reporting and, and trying to forge the access to information channels better because, you know, for better or for worse, China is trying to the extent that it can to almost set up a completely separate internet with a completely set of different set of rules. Um, And those are pretty pernicious to freedom and to the democratizing influence that I think the internet and social media and other platforms can really have when used appropriately. Would you say that like another perhaps influencing factor on why Chinese citizens are afraid to speak out are like general ideas of Chinese surveillance and like the increasing like monitoring of people. Like I know one of my friends was in China this summer and she was trying to talk to her Chinese peer about like the Hong Kong protest and her friend Mm. was just like, we're not going to talk about this like in the subway station. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Like we can talk about it at home if you want to, but like not in public. Yeah. No, I believe that that has an influence and probably is one of the most dangerous aspects um, and threats to freedom is when people end up having to self-censor. I think that definitely has long-term implications. And I know I've seen that a lot in my study of North Korea. I cover North Korea human rights issues as well. Um, And they have a whole system of snitching um, where even family members will go and report their other family member to the Bowie Bow or the um, secret police. And uh, I mean, it create it breaks down society in many ways when you can't trust your neighbor, you can't trust your family, you can't trust your friends. Um, and I think that definitely does have implications. But I also think, and I don't, I don't want to overly generalize here, but I think one of the things that's difficult as an American watching other societies is like keeping in mind that in the U.S. everyone so exclusively defines themselves by their individual identity Mm -hmm. as opposed to a collective identity. And I was having an interesting conversation actually with a friend a couple of days ago where I was they were asking me why does Mao and the Cultural Revolution play such a major like part in Chinese imagination of their like political economy and culture, um, and I think some of it is that the sacrifices that were made during the Cultural Revolution by many Chinese were viewed as worthy sacrifices for the outcome of the state, mm. and that's something that I think is harder to understand as Americans, but is something that definitely plays into why individual violations of rights mm. aren't seen as as dire as they are here in the U.S. where individuals are really prized as the... Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, something that's always kind of bothered me about the way that the United States has handled human rights with other great powers is that they seem to 
you know, they know that it's happening, but their first instinct is not, we should speak out. It's, it's, it's more like, oh, how will this impact the negotiations here? Mm -hmm. Or how will this impact the trade negotiations there? So, uh, like, I understand that, that the trade negotiations are delicate, especially because there's such a touchy subject for China. Yeah. But I feel like there's some stuff and that should not... And the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but there's something that I feel like should not... Like, we, they shouldn't buy our silence because they're going to, like, agree to, like, decrease tariffs. Mm. So how does an executive branch, like, walk that delicate line? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> right. If we answer it here, guys, we've got, you know, yeah, really good like, jobs lined up for us. Um, yeah, but I think this gets a little bit to what I was talking about before, where there are these unnatural separations in the way that even, like, the State Department is structured. Mm -hmm. Like, you have the, you know... Um, regional bureaus and then you have the human rights and then you have some of these other like subsets even like econ bureaus and otherwise and I think that sometimes I mean I think that's a reflection of the finite nature of man that like we can't actually <laughs> manage all of these different um, subjects at once but I think that there needs to be a a better job in either the way it's structured that forces individuals in the econ department to think about the national security implications and folks who are focusing on the national security implications to focus on the human rights issues. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on folks like you and I who are going to be writing on these issues to think through those linkages ourselves and to really make the case that they exist there. Um, so like, for example, when I wrote my paper on Xinjiang for Heritage, I really tried to look at, okay, the administration has this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. What are the two modifiers to the Indo-Pacific strategy? Free and open. What is free and open? Their values. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. values should be a critical component of the Indo-Pacific strategy. So what does that look like in practice? If the administration is rhetorically committing to a free and open Indo-Pacific, what does that mean for Xinjiang? What does that mean for the Rohingya in Burma? What does that mean for individuals in North Korea in political prison camps? And what does that mean for U.S. policy to address that? And I think that the administration gave you a pretty good framework where they even talk about like religious freedom being a priority and um, Vice President Pence uh, in a Washington Post op-ed he says there's no room for authoritarianism in Asia well if there's no room for authoritarianism in Asia then human rights issues need to be inextricably linked in a lot of these issues now I want to be clear about this I don't think we should force human rights into discussions where they don't fit Right. In areas where there's really not a linkage, like let's not force it there. But in the areas where there is a linkage, why not push on that a little bit further and think about how we can use some of the tools that, especially national security practitioners, because people at State Department, DOD, national security is always front of mind. What tools are they already familiar with that you can then fit the human rights framework into their broader framework? I think that's the challenge for policymakers in the next generation is to think through creatively what that looks like. And for me, I've often pulled it towards sanctions, but I think there's got to be a lot of other tools that national security practitioners are using on a regular basis, whether that's diplomacy or like um, modified forms of engagement um, that where we can integrate human rights and humanitarian principles into them. So hopefully we can all do that in our, <laughs> in our jobs. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe just to wrap us out, um, I know we've asked uh, the other two experts today their thoughts on the future, and the response was the same, was essentially, it's crazy to think about the future because we don't know. But in terms of, I don't know, do you think, do you think the international pressure, the increasing international pressure that we've seen, especially in the past couple of weeks following the leaks, um, do you think this is really going to have an impact? And if not, what's next? 
I think there's definitely momentum. Um, there are certain realities about the timing of these papers, like the fact, this is going to sound terrible, but the fact that Thanksgiving came shortly after and Christmas came shortly after mm -hmm. that may cause um, all of that to lose momentum. Mm -hmm. That means that folks like myself, folks at Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, at other academic institutions, um, around town, around the globe, have a responsibility to really continue to press and raise these issues. Right. We're lucky because there are um, a number of wonderful Uyghur Americans here, as well as Uyghurs who have gotten refugee status or asylum um, since being released, that we have to turn to. People love stories. People get connected to stories. And right. people like it when they can relate to another person's story. And I think highlighting those as a part of the broader policy arc is going to be really important to maintaining momentum on this. Yes, I agree with my colleagues. One can never <laughs> yeah. predict the future, but one can... Um, decide what actions they're going to take Wish in order effect. to affect the future. And so I think there's going to be a real need to keep the drumbeat going here in D.C. and, and around the globe. Okay. Well, thank you very much for thank joining you us. Thank so much. Yeah, yeah. thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hopkins, P-O-F-A. And we'll see you next time.